welcome to the Guitar Hang Podcast, episode number 10. I'm your host, John Stancor. My guest today is Rob Fetters. Rob is the guitarist, vocalist, and lyricist for the critically acclaimed bands The Raisins, The Bears, and Psychodots. Rob has just released his fourth solo album, Shipshake, and we begin our conversation talking about the infamous George Harrison Rocky guitar featured in the Beatles' I Am the Walrus video. Well, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm, 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 looking, at, I'm looking at your background now. I'm just seeing you've got a little studio there. Yeah. Oh, man, you've got, you, 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 you've got Rocky. I do. You know, the guys at, the guys at Custom, the HHI guys, they... One yeah. of my buddies worked there, and uh, they had a a, a beat-up red guitar. The only thing I haven't done is painted a baby blue on the back yet. Uh-huh. To be like George's, uh, I don't know what year that would have been, when John and he got the matching baby blue, Pelham blue. I guess maybe it was Pelham blue or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Pelham blue. I, I, I was going to say, I, I'm thinking maybe it was around 66. I've got the book that tells, I've got a Beatle yeah. guitar book, yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a feeling that many of us are afflicted with the. Uh, in fact, I always I always admired your Strat, and I thought, well, it it had such a rocky like character of its own. Yeah, with the Kaler on it. Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, I, I was I, I painted my guitar. Uh, I painted that. Um, I guess two thousand and one when the uh, the Bears made. Uh, uh, car caught fire and we were going to go on the road and you know there I was with all my my boring guitars standing next to Adrian Ballou and I decided I better paint paint it <laughs> right now now it's iconic now right it's yeah there's something about having a I don't think George probably put much too much thought into his when he did it you know it was was it pre I'm the walrus video it was right around that, I think. Yeah, and um, I think he took some of Patty's, uh, like, uh, sparkly lip gloss or something, some sort of eye mascara kind of stuff, and put it, like, the sparkly stuff on the headstock. and Yeah, fingernail polish. And fingernail stuff. polish, yeah. Yeah. On mine, um, this is a, um, a Strat Plus, it was. Yeah. Ah, there it is. And uh, it, it was red, and it's uh, polyethylene, whatever. It's a, it's a, oh, because it's a Kaler, that, that's why there's no springs. Took me yeah. a second to real. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. And no that's all there's no springs because it's a Kaler. Yeah. Yeah. This is an '80s Kaler. Yeah. Um. And uh. Anyway, it, it was. Uh, I guess it's been. Has it been refretted? Yeah, I think Dave Schneider refretted it. Oh, Dave figured out that the, the nut on top was uh, actually not in a good, the right place for good intonation, so he moved that. Yeah. Rollers there. Um, I I put spurtsels on on most of my guitars. Yeah. When we played in Cleveland, Bob Spurtsel and his wife came backstage. Uh, <laughs> And I got him to autograph it, so I've got oh, nice Bob Spurzel saying he was he was hilarious, great guy. Oh, that's awesome! And um, I mean, it's just it's what I do to most guitars. They end up like like Dave Schneider um, really reinforced these, so they're they're not only it's not four screws, there are six. 
holding that next so when I do. Yeah, do all that. Yeah, um, I, I remember clearly seeing you guys at uh, on the, uh, and you guys were killing it. You and Adrian were doing that all night. Uh, uh, the Rise and Shine tour. Right. Well, I did. You know, I did it because I didn't have a twang bar that that worked right. <laughs> right. So you were yeah. playing the guitar, and then Adrian. Um, uh, started doing it because it looks cool, apparently. Right. And uh, pickups on it aren't lace sensors anymore. They're N3s. I just got a pick guard with everything on it <clears throat> and put it in there. I think I put it in right. I don't know. It might be out of phase or in phase. Um, but at the moment, nothing really works on it except, like, I guess the volume control works. Maybe that, yeah, one of the tone controls works, but... Yeah. I, I just Stratocasters just eventually revert to one pickup working with one volume, <laughs> right, yeah. and it's yeah. enough. Right. You know the one thing. You know I'm an adult now, but I, you know, I found out about uh, my heroes back in the day. Whereas maybe your heroes were guys that you were seeing, like you know, the MC MC Five and the Who and Jimi Hendrix. Thanks to your father taking you to see Hendrix when you're 15 and uh, 13, 13. And yeah. lastly, what my my heroes, oddly enough, of how old I was, was essentially you guys. You know, whether it would be the raisins or wheels and all that kind of stuff. And uh -huh. it was amazing to me that uh, we had that here in our little humble town. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's it's you know, all we do is pass it on. You know, and the th the thing for me is, you know, I grew up, uh, I'm not from Cincinnati. I grew up in uh, uh, Sylvania, Ohio, which is a suburb right. of Toledo. Right. And kind of like Blue, Rat, Blue Ashes to Cincinnati. It's a nice, it's a nice suburban yeah. place. Um, the high school I went to was just loaded with guitar players. Um, I, uh, guys like Bob Terry, um, who like the week journey to the center of the mind was, <laughs> was <laughs> on ALW out of Windsor. Um, he, he was playing it just like the record. Right. Um, Scott Covrett, who has moved to Cincinnati as a Cincinnati and now uh, was a couple years older than me and I idolized him and, and Scott could just, you know, he could play "When Cries Mary" just like the record and stuff like that. Um, so uh, there, it was just loaded. Everybody was a really good guitar player, and I was just, you know, this kind of chubby middle school kid. That I mean, I can't even say I ever practiced. It was just, it was just the I loved playing guitar. It was, you know, as I've said, I, I got good at two things in middle school and tenth grade, and. One of them you'd get arrested for if you, <laughs> and the other one was play guitar. They both came quite naturally to me, right. and I did them nonstop. Um, so uh, I was really inspired by that, and 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 so I was kind of like a hot shot show off guitar player when I was fourteen. By the time I was fourteen and and fifteen, and I played with, I got to play with older kids. Right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they were they were like grown up. Scott Covrett, when he you know he's seventeen, he was like, he's a man. <laughs> <laughs> right. To me, and um, 
So uh, I hung out with them, and the the great benefit was that they were old enough to have driver's licenses, and they drove me to the concerts I got to see. So that's how I got to I. I was certainly one of the youngest kids at the at the like the rock halls um, in Detroit, the Grandy Ballroom, um, which closed. It, it, another place opened, but those were like the Fillmore's, right. the Fillmore Auditoriums of, um, uh, I guess uh, the 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 equivalent here in Cincinnati. I n- I never went to it, but it was called the Ludlow Garage. Those kind of bands played, but man, I got to see them all, and and a lot of big famous bands also played at the University of Toledo. So that's how I got to see, um, like Iron Butterfly. You know, I I, I talk. <laughs> Keith Braun, the guitar player. <laughs> right. I was little enough where I could just get backstage all the time because I was a kid and I would just go and start right. talking to roadies or the drummer or the girlfriend of the, right. or, you know, groupies around. And they just, you know, they just thought I was some cute little kid and, and protected me and um, were just really friendly. I always got treated treated really well. But that was my first um, my first exposure to bands that were actually making albums, and in my mind, were very famous, like the MC Five. Um, and you know, and I, and I I love the MC Five because the MC Five taught me a lot about um, when you when they went on stage. The only way to describe it is they took the stage. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever had been, you know, maybe navel gazing playing the guitars quiet <laughs> what you know yeah. the band mc5 or the band after you know god help them because mc5 just like owned it yeah robin wayne just um, came crushing on the stage yeah That's yeah cool. and they, and it wasn't that they were you know master musicians or anything like that it was it was an attitude and spirit uh and that's i think that i'm pretty sure that that's what uh the raisins tried to copy and at least we, we tried to behave that way so when we came to cincinnati we, we probably scared a few musicians because you know we didn't it's not that we thought we were the you know the greatest musicians in the world but we knew you could you should at least act like it <laughs> you know fake right. it till you make but then we came here and um you know you mentioned wheels um because uh, wheels were like you know the competition, you know right, they yeah, yeah. they were. <clears throat> I mean, they were hip Cincinnati guys, you know, and we were for <laughs> 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 a barrel full of monkeys, you know. We 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 didn't care, you know. Because our <laughs> our eyes were never on being the best band in Cincinnati. We wanted to be, you know, right. We wanted to be the uh, international, right. um, but. Uh, but very quickly, uh, it became apparent how wonderful uh, they were as musicians. Uh, Jeff Jeffrey Seaman. Oh yeah. Yeah, I still get really excited when I. <laughs> uh, we talk from time to time, and we we send stuff to each other, and I and it's like I, I got to pinch myself. Jeffrey Seaman's trying to get a hold. Of him. No, he just. <laughs> um, because yeah. he he was just he was lightning in a bottle. Right. Um. And I, I, I've just, I'm a huge fan of him. He, he just does this thing that's like, uh, it's, uh, he, 
his guitar style to me is thrilling. Right. Um, he, he gets on this edge and it's like, is he going to hit that? He's going to hit that note, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I really get a feeling from him like I get from when I go see uh, Jeff Beck. Oh, yeah. You know, whoa, this person's on a tightrope. And every now and then they kind of fall off. It's just like the circus and it makes it more exciting. Right. Which, which by the <laughs> way, I love your, your little Beck homage on profits. Oh. oh, unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tip of the hat, but it's so uniquely woven. And I love the fact that it doesn't, it doesn't take you anywhere you think that it was going to take. I had no idea what was coming next. When I heard that intro, I thought, wow, what is this going to be? So it was a, a lovely right turn, perfectly executed. So I'm a huge Beck fan. And to hear somebody play that where it was, it was your thing, but it was definitely a hint at Jeff. Yeah, I mean, anytime. Yeah, I, I, as soon as the twang bar enters the picture, it's just like, what are you, what are you going to do? I, I um, yeah, and and and, but the thing about that is that I got a lot of chances to do it. You know, it's it's uh, right, right. That's so. Low. Who knows? Who knows how many takes I did <laughs> before I got it right, and th- I was throwing stuff out, and then you right. know, I go, ah, sound good or, or whatever. Um, but then I got it right. The trouble with that, the the, the trouble with that now is that uh, I was playing that song at house concerts and um, on the live streams, but then when the record came out, I realized I had to play it kind of like the record. Right. Um, once again, I was listening to my. <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell, hell did, did I, I do right yeah that that's happened to me on um other songs too i a lot of times i'll i think the stuff i'm happiest with are, are things that i do without really thinking it's I, I while i'm tracking it i'm thinking okay i'll do the real solo later i just want to put this in here as a placeholder mm-hmm. you know like a temp solo and then when I come back and listen to it three months later, it's go, you know, it's like, why would I change that? Right. You know, um, and, but then the problem occurs if I decide I want to double track it to get that George Harrison sound or oh, whatever. Right. <laughs> right. I have to learn it. And yeah, then it's like, right. oh, how did I, did yeah. I use my thumb or, or whatever? Right. Well, I'm just going to go off a tangent right, right off the bat. Um, Thanks to YouTube, we get to hear a lot of stuff about, uh, like the Beatles. You know, like like I always assumed uh, the great Beatles guitar sounds were that I really liked best were all Rickenbackers and Gretches. And it turns out they weren't. They uh, the Beatles sounds that I really started digging um, were kind of like uh, starting to uh, rubber soul on. Yeah. And that was when the Beatles had those um, Pelham Blue Stratocasters. Right. And we're double tra- double tracking that. It was like, duh. <laughs> right. I thought I needed a Rickenbacker. I, no, I don't really need one. Um, well, everybody needs one. Yeah, at least let's one. Look, <laughs> let's look at one. Uh, right. I mean, I get a funny feeling when I look at Rickenbackers. It's oh yes. Yeah. But um, when I, I, I there's a quote in uh, George Harrison thought that his guitar sound was crap on early Beatle albums right. and and i've heard it and then other people jump on the bandwagon 
You know, I've even heard Keith Richards, yeah, the Beatles, guitar sound. I don't know about it. You know, George Martin, you know. <clears throat> and um, I worship Keith Richards. I love him. He is God. <laughs> there was a time like in the early 70s, he was so cool looking, I would have cut his toenails for him, whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, I'd still cut his toenails if he needed his. So, so I love Keith, but um, I, I simply don't agree. I love the sound of those oh, early, right. you know, yeah. the, the, the flat wound pyramid strings that just kind of go funk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. there's no sustain or anything. It's just they're plugged into, I guess, a box amplifier and then funk. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I like lots of different funny guitar sounds. My, I think my general rule with guitars always has been, is it in tune or not? Right. Uh, if a guitar stays in tune, I'll put up with however the hell it sounds. I'll just kind of work, mm -hmm. learn how to work my way around it. I, I watched the uh, one of the most devastating performances that's still floating around on YouTube is uh, the Dr. Robert performance from Rock Around the Block. Yeah, I, I have to say that you would be hard pressed for that period of time to find anybody that could pull that off and make it look like such child's play. About every ninety days for the last fifteen years, or whether whenever uh, the YouTube started, yeah, being ubiquitous, I get somebody will send me a link to it saying, "Have you seen this? Do you know about oh, this?" Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and uh, sometimes it'll be a phone call. And it's really funny because, you know, I, I just say, yeah, I know about that. <laughs> I, I'm the guy in the video. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's basically, you know, what is it? A, G, D, that, a, you know, that, that little, the little, that little uh, intro thing. Yeah, well, the intro thing um, uh, came out. About the time we started doing that was about the time um, Adrian was playing in King Crimson. And I think I had, you know, I had figured out, you, you know, when you have a scale, you can kind of go. Can you hear this? Yep. Yeah, I got okay. it. So, you know, so you can do, you know, mm -hmm. scales sequentially and you can also kind of it's really not the it's not the left hand it's it's the right hand kind of you know, you know i would do what do you know you know you just talk i mean it, it's i guess if you do it enough it, it's just it's second nature um so I could probably sing anything over that, you know. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. You know, it's just. And if you have Bam Pow, you have a drummer. I mean, the rest of the band's rocking it out. So it was, I couldn't get too far off um, course. Um, and uh, by that point, I think I did that Strat, which was what was left of a 56 Strat. Yeah. Had one working pickup, one volume knob, mm -hmm. no twang bar. 
<laughs> that worked. Right. Uh, um, I, I can't remember now. I can't. I should know whether I. I can't remember if I had a the neck off a sixty three strat. I had a fifty six and a sixty three, and yeah. I take the neck off one, put it on the other, just to yeah. see what would happen. But you know, it's, I, I I don't know. Uh, but where are we where are we going with that? Yeah, I I could probably. Um, it's probably my duty to do that during the live streams, figure out a way to do it. To do, right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if the raisins play again and I really, I mean, I don't want to be cagey about it or anything. I really want the raisins to play oh, a few yeah. because uh, number one, we can, everybody in the band I think is a better musician now than they were then. Oh, right. And we could we could whip out Dr. Robert and oh yeah, you know. and there, there's so many other things that I mean, just the idea of because you you hit it on the head because you can. Yeah, yeah, that's a good reason to do stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. As, as, as we uh, as we mature like a fine wine, we realize there's a little bit less runway than there yeah, was yeah. back in the day. And and kids, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. But should some, right? Good. Right. Just, and, you know, speaking, speaking of kid, I mean, I think that for your kids, uh, they would love to see that. They don't, I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that predated your kids. So would be. And here's the thing I, I would, you know, people would say, have you, have you seen this rock around the block show? And I was, yes, I was in the, band. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, you know, for a long time, I was just embarrassed about it, you know, because my hair is kind of, I don't know, Ted Nugent-y or, or whatever. Um, uh, I was wearing my one red pair of red jeans. Um, <clears throat> but uh, when my kids were in high school, some of their friends <clears throat> would see it and suddenly I became kind of cool. Right. Because they thought they thought that was pretty cool. Their, their guitar playing buddies saw that and thought I was pretty cool until we had them over for dinner and we talked and they realized I was <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't well, be a good hip dad at the same time. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough gig to keep that, uh, that sleight of hand being yeah. super cool. Yeah. But it, yeah, it would be something exciting, not only for the fans, but for your, for your family and for actually for the, all the people that, that uh, hold the raisins dear. I think that for every one fan that loved the raisins, there was a musician that decided, well, maybe I shouldn't continue on this course because that's as good as it's going to get. That that's. Oh. The, I, I think we all, many of us. I mean, and I, I, you know, I'm from Cincinnati. I've I've spent most of my life here. Uh, been playing music for over 30 years. I would say that if you were to ask the average musician that's been doing it for a couple decades, they would say, yeah, but we, we hold you guys as our Beatles. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't know that because I feel pretty forgotten. <clears throat> I go into, you know, I go into shake it records and say, you know, I've got some records here. Yeah. And, and what's your name? I'm Rob Fetter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guys that own it know me, but the other people that work there, they, they don't know me, you know. Right. What's interesting is the, the fact that we've lost Leslie West and Eddie recently. 
those are two guys that I know that you have interesting stories about one from your, when you were younger and going to see him. And then once when you took a trip out to LA to, to yeah. visit, I, I, I think a lot of people would, that maybe don't know that story would find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I go over it. It's funny. It's a, a lot of stuff happened this one week. Um, I, I always thought it was 78 and Adrian corrected me recently. It was 77. So I was like 22 and, uh, um, the raisins have been playing like crappy bars in the Midwest and the, and, and South down to the panhandle and, and back. And we, we had, the raisins were kind of, this sounds snooty, but we were kind of musicians, musicians, um, musicians appreciated us um bar owners and audiences didn't necessarily <laughs> right they're always screwing around um and uh so adrian Ballou, who was not yet a big famous person um was living in nashville and he would come see us play and he knew a lo- he knew about us more than I knew about him. Um, but our manager at the time, agent manager, whatever guys trying to get us gigs and work. Um, Stan Hertzman also did the same thing for Adrian. And, um, all I really knew about Adrian was that he was recording some demos and he, he needed to borrow, he needed a flanger. So he borrowed my Tycho Bray pedal flanger. <laughs> it was really cool right. device. I've had, I've got, I've got what's left of it. Um, and, uh, so I didn't really know him, but I, I, I got a, I had a crush on a, a girl, a singer, um, who was playing with some guys I knew in LA and we had exchanged letters and it was, why don't you come out to LA? And I thought, sure. You know, you know, I'm basically a, a musician from Toledo, Ohio. I'll go to, <laughs> right, yeah. I get invited to Hollywood. I'm going. So I went out and it took about 45 minutes to realize this, this love affair is not a love affair. <laughs> and I had some time on my hand. Um, and I, uh, <clears throat> my, I've got a bunch of relatives in LA in Southern California. So my aunt and uncle rescued me from this girl's house. And um, my cousin, um, my cousin David, who's a professional musician, musician was actually made made a living doing uh, sessions as a trombonist. Oh wow! In the '70s and <laughs> and and uh, which not many of those floating no, around no, in the world. No, um, but a, a fine musician, and um, he rescued me. He said, ah, we got a spare bedroom, his, his, his first wife, and in Canoga Park. <laughs> so I went out and lived with it, uh, or stayed with him, and he gave me the keys to a car, uh, um, uh, early 60s Ford Falcon station wagon, just beat to crap, and um, a uh, bunch of you know beer cans crushed up in the bag, which was just like a garbage car basically. Right, but I, right. so I had I was in L.A. and I had wheels, and uh, he handed me a bag of peyote buttons. Yeah. He said, "I don't know what to do with these," and I said, "I know what to do with them." Um, so I had a bag of peyote buttons, and um, I called Stan Hertzman, 
and said, I'm in LA, Stan, is there any, can I go to a record label or something and try to get a deal or something? <laughs> and he said, well, you need a demo and you don't have a demo. <laughs> but he said, but he said, but um, Adrian's out there rehearsing with Frank Zappa and I'm sure he'd love to see you. Oh, nice. And I, I really didn't know Adrian, but I just called him. I, I had got his phone number from the place he was staying um, on Franklin Avenue off Highland. Um, and, uh, I called him and he's, um, he said, well, can you, you've got wheels? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, could you give me a ride home after rehearsal? So, you know, like the day after I got my heart broken, I'm, I'm driving through, uh, Hollywood and Burbank to the Warner brothers lot and got to listen in to uh, that version of the Frank Zappa band. You know, Terry Bozio was a drummer and um, Patrick O'Hare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, fantastic band. And with, so I, I got to be a fly on the wall for some of that. You know, within 48 hours, I had played the famous uh, Jimi Hendrix burnt guitar <laughs> that uh, that frank owned um that he had uh set on fire at the miami pop festival not the Monterey one the miami um miami one and um had given frank zappa a ride home uh and and been invited in to eat and i was too nervous to eat but i did drink coffee and uh met his wife and everything and got to you know hang out with Frank Zappa and these other musicians and and Adrian you know and that's right. and that's when we bonded we became yeah. friends yeah. and it was a really amazing week and I also uh the girl that I that broke my heart uh, her best friend um Stella and I became friends and Stella knew knew everybody in Hollywood and where to go she knew you know Let's go to the rainbow and get a drink and stuff. So she showed Adrian and I around and um, we became friends and we were still friends. Um, and I wrote that song Stella about her. Right, yeah. yeah. Which she never heard. She did not hear that till about seven years ago when I was <laughs> in Los Angeles and I ran into her. Right. I was too embarrassed to ever play her that song. And I, uh, I, I found the the raisins or psychodots doing a version of it on on YouTube, and I just played it for. <laughs> you know, she's kind of jaded Hollywood type. You know, she's actually right. from Queens, but mm -hmm. her, her jaw dropped. <laughs> yeah, great song. Yeah, I could see yeah. where she would be touched. Yeah. So, um, but but that was sad, and that that's really the beginning of. Uh, that thing where you know hopefully you get somebody that's a little more famous than you or a lot more famous than you to produce produce an album and mm -hmm. um eventually adrian produced the raisins album right yeah you know what people don't know about the raisins album is that 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 album was recorded and mixed in less than two weeks um all the tracks on it are primarily live uh, we went into QCA and didn't record in the the studio proper. Mm -hmm. um, to have separation, we recorded in different parts of the factory because it used to be a record factory kind of yeah. place. 
and we recorded between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. Oh, wow. So Fear is Never Boring um, is a live right. run through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I, I talk to Bam fairly frequently, and, and he reminds me of how hard we worked. We didn't really think about it at the time, mm-hmm. but we did, we did sometimes have three gigs in one day. Right. Um, uh, I think the day we played, it's either, it's either men and work. We, we open, we'd open for bands out at Riverbend, but yeah, it was their men work really idle. But one of those that afternoon we played in Dayton did played in a mall (laughs) (laughs) and left with $300 or whatever. And then we opened for, you know, headliner at Riverbend. And then we couldn't stay for that because we had to go out to the golden pheasant (laughs) and play till, you know, 1am outside. Yeah. And, uh, I, we just worked. Yeah, I got it. it's funny. I mean, you know, I was just thinking about it. Yeah, we were so broke. We were so broken. I still feel rotten about this, but um, God, Lou Shottlecotty, sweetheart of a guy, you know, at one point said, "Man, you got to you got to try a Mesa Boogie." And he had a Mesa Boogie amp, and he sold it to me, and I I paid him like half the money I owed him, and then and then I like took forever to pay him the other hundred dollars. Um, it just it it was. It's funny. We were really poor, but we were so engaged. We didn't really think about it. Um, but like, it was tough to just buy strings. <laughs> I, I think the, the Beatles comparison, at least from my perspective, and maybe some other folks that are music, local musicians, is I remember it being told that when uh, back in the '60s, when Bands were going to hang out in Carnaby Street or wherever it was, or going to the Bag of Nails Club or wherever it was. The Beatles all did everything together, and they were they were a cohesive. It was like this four-headed monster, and that was that's the vibe that I got from the Raisins is that you guys, while you were four distinctly different people, you acted as one unit, and there was so much banter back and forth with things being said and played and musically. It was the closest thing that I think that we could, it, it, it seemed like such a yeah. tight brotherhood. I remember thinking, man, if nothing else, I would love to be in a band where it seemed like everybody was so focused on the same goal. And it seemed like a, a united front that you guys could, you're like yeah. old war buddies. And yet the curse of the Raisins was that we were so, uh, musically, the thing that kept us saying to people was that we would, you know, we'd go in one direction, you know, we'd be new wavy on this song and this other one would be heavy R&B. And we didn't have a a, a, a tight focus musical direction. And that, I mean, that was presented to us by, by labels that said, you know, there's no focus to this band um, as together as we were. Um, but you know, that kind of thing actually might pay off now. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I know even on my own, though, I mean, it's, it's not like it's not, it was nobody in the band's fault. It could be, I mean, you can listen to Shipshake and say, is this the same guy? I mean, I think you can, but, but 
I, I get bored. I, every now and then I do want to be kind of R&B-ish. Right. And every now and then I do want to be really art-rocky. You know, it just keeps it for me. Then that was the Beatles, right? That was like, you know, the White Album was all over the place. Yeah. And that's what, I, to me, that's what makes it exciting and compelling. As a solo artist, I, I'm very fascinated about your lyrical inspiration. Um, my real bliss, because um, I've given it some thought, you know, what is what is my bliss? Where Where is it the best? And my, the best thing for me is when, you know, I'm noodling around or whatever, and it's this it's this point where it's like, oh, I'm writing a new song. This is a song. I'm building a song. It's and it might be you know thirty or forty percent of the way into it, and then uh, call it the flow or whatever. You just take off, um, and then to me that's heaven on earth. Until you're about eighty percent done with it, and then the w- real work begins. You got to finish the damn thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But as as far as that goes, I've just. Um, um, the the yeah i really love the beatles i really love um the creativity with the beatles i i no longer consider the beagle beetle the beagles the beatles a four-piece group it's a five-piece group to me i i see what george martin i know what george martin did mm-hmm. now to right. that band and um helped them <clears throat> was the catalyst and also he played and made up all sorts of stuff that's all over Beatle records that he never got credit for as a writer. Um, but uh, just just that breadth of, of production, which was then followed by uh, bands, well, even The Who, I mean, The Who, The Who by Quadrophenia was getting kind of far away from from uh, my generation um, and still keeping that energy, but adding to it. So I always like that kind of uh, production that was really like focused production. I just, I get excited when I hear it. Um, I, I would get a, I, when I would st- step back and consider the fact that um, Eleanor Rigby is what two two minutes and fifteen seconds long, and it's a it's like a novella. Right. I mean, you you could make a movie out of those characters. Oh yeah, they're pretty fully formed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Paul McCartney. <laughs> a lot of people diss as being a trite person or something. That song is really heavy, um, lyrically and thematically. And then, of course, George Martin just kind of taking the ball. Right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't know that any of the four Beatles were going to be writing the arrangement for the piccolo horn thing in uh, Penny Lane. Yeah, right. I mean, and and what what would the song be without that that part? Yeah. Yeah, it's just wonderful. So um, I like that. And then... um, in coming back to America, I was, I, I really probably around 10th grade. Um, I think that's when we first heard Naz Naz, um, Todd Rungren's mm-hmm. 
first recorded band um, and fell in love with that. And then I I followed Todd and and Todd was like just a fantastic teacher because he was a huge Anglophile, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, so all that stuff was really attractive to me. And I, I didn't necessarily know how to do it. The thing that happened to me, and at the time it was, felt kind of tragic, but I was grateful for it was that I started doing commercial music because I I simply had to, I couldn't, I couldn't support my family. I was going to have to not be a musician. I don't know what the hell else I would have done, but if I didn't get some way of um, being able to stay home Mm -hmm. to help raise my kids, I wanted to be, I wanted to be around while my kids grew up. And the, the commercial music thing, um, was uh, this this place in town? I, there really aren't many places like this anymore. This is this is like I, I think it was really swinging or in the '80s when I wasn't doing it so much. But every now and then I would get a call. They do a rock jingle or something, mm-hmm. and they all fetters or they call Mike Wheeler, you know, right. whoever, right. you know, play, plan this stuff. So I would do that, and um, at one point. <clears throat> I, I told the owner of the studio in typical Fetters fashion, I said, man, this stuff's, this is crap. I could write, I can write this kind of crap if you want. Right. You know, I, I just said, right. call me, need some crap. <laughs> what right. you want. You know? right. and, and he wasn't offended because I think he knew it was crap. Right. And, um, and then he called me a couple of times. And, and that's how, uh, like, I did the La Rose's 347 jingle. That was the first jingle I ever wrote. And um, I just desperately needed to pay, pay a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And that covered the mortgage, right. uh, what I paid for that. Uh, um, the guy that hired me to do it made about 20 mortgages off it, but uh, I didn't know that part of the business. Um so I did that, and then uh, eventually the composer, and these are guys, guys that are composers or people that can do orchestral arrangements, choral arrangements, uh, be creative, make, make, make shit up, um, do all that, maybe go into jazz, whatever. They're, they're usually educated musicians, which I am not. Um, formally you know i have no formal music uh, training but uh this one guy that i was working with more and more who i really liked a lot um was moving to back to la he was from california santa barbara to open up the studio and right that summer i just said well could i go to the studio at night and just learn digital audio workstations and all this stuff. And this is 1996 because right. I knew nothing about it. I really barely knew how to turn on a computer in 1996. And he said, yeah. And I really got into it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really fun. And I'd go in there after the place closed at night and spend five or six hours just screwing around. Uh, learning how to learning MIDI um, recording in a different way than, than I was used to. And, um, and then I begged my way into the gig. Uh, 
at the end of that summer, I just asked this guy that owned the place, give me a shot. And um, I would have signed any contract, and I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what happened is I started getting work, and when word got out that this guy that had been in the Bears and the Raisins and whatever was doing it, creative directors who had probably grown up getting drunk watching me play, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or... You know, the guy at Bush Entertainment saw me play in St. Louis, you know, right, and he right. was a big fan. And somehow he found out that I was a music whore, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought a lot of work. I got a lot of work uh, from different parts of the country. I had no idea that was going to happen, but it did happen. And I heard myself say over and over again to people, they'd ask me to do something and I wouldn't know how to do it. And I'd say, oh, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's, and that's, get off the phone and then just spend the night. How you in know. the hell am I going to get this done? Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it really is. It's, I've, I've heard this story from other people. You know, it's like overnight, I need to learn how to score for a string quartet. Right. You know, but I can't really write music and those chaps, sharps and flats really. But <laughs> with, with, with digital, you know, as long as I get it sounding right, right. on a keyboard, it prints out right and um and gradually i would learn from the musicians that would come in i my it was sounding good because it's if it sounds good it is good Mm -hmm. and and i i had people around me mentors around me that that reminded me of that so i wouldn't i wouldn't feel like i was incapable of doing it but that's where i learned how to 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 do uh string arrangements Mm -hmm. Um, I learned if I had a really complicated, uh, choral arrangement, who to call. And that was great because I learned when you work with other composers, other arrangers, you, and you just pay attention, you learn how to do it. And, uh, daily I was, I was literally, I had a nine to five job, you know, eight, eight to eight job a lot of days. (laughs) But, uh, I, I, was living and working in a studio, right. a, a fully tricked out, really good studio, Sound Images in Cincinnati. It was right. a great room. And if you put the drums in the right spot, it's the best drum room right. I've ever been in. Right. Um, if you put the drums in the right, right. spot, right. which the engineers had figured out and they shared that information with me. So um, I, I learned... I learned so much there. That was like my graduate education, my 10 years, just cranking stuff out. And, and, you know, like, uh, ABC would call needing a promo and they'd, they'd call me because I was in the Midwest and we, I do, I'd work a lot cheaper than people in Burbank. Um, at the time now people in Burbank will work. They'll undercut us, I guess. Um, but, um, you, you know, they'd say, "Well, we've got we got the rights to a Smash Mouth song. We're gonna re we're gonna re uh, re lyric it for thirty seconds. Can you make it sound just like the record?" And that I, I did that hundreds of times for different projects. Right. And that is really that was really good. Like uh, we've got oh we've got the rights to We Are the Champions. <laughs> well, yeah. cool. I've got an opportunity to get my AC30s like, out. <laughs> yeah, 
how can I sound like Brian May? You know, and, and guess what? You don't really need that guitar to yeah. sound like Brian yeah. May. You, right. you know, you, you tweak it till it sounds like it. Um, and, and I didn't use physics. <laughs> um, so, so I, I learned a lot of, I, I learned a, just a crap load about production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like, uh, we want to make it sound like squirrel nut zippers. I don't know if you remember squirrel yeah, nut zippers. Kind of, kind of the dance, uh, what, 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 yeah. what did they call that? 20, it's it dance. Other, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I just read about squirrel nut zippers and they talk about, well, we, we wanted to sound, we wanted to sound like the twenties and in the twenties, they put one ribbon mic in the room and <laughs> arranged a little orchestra. Right. With, the ribbon. With, with depth, right. For yeah. With audio, depth. Right. And we got a little jazz group in and we put, um, uh, you know, one mic in there. I was standing on a chair, so I'd be at the right, get the mix. And, mm-hmm. And so I learned all sorts of production um, techniques like that and, and worked with, uh, you know, you talk about great musicians or great um, guitar players, whatever, in Cincinnati. God, the technical people in Cincinnati, I, we, we have really good engineers here. There are some brilliant engineers, and some of them are still here. Yeah. So I, I would just learn from them and and found out different um, mic techniques and ba- basically what I what I found out and I got very confident at is that I can do this. Right. Um, soon after getting ADATs was just like, well, actually I had ADATs before I got the job at mm-hmm. Sound Images. Mm-hmm. Before I knew what, how to do digital audio workstations, ADATs were really the breakaway mm-hmm. for me. That was the real ticket to freedom because all I needed then were some uh, g- a good analog signal path mm-hmm. and uh, straight to uh, 16-bit ADATs, mm-hmm. and that's how I made Lefty, and that's that's how the Bears made um, Carcot Fire. You know, Lefty was the record where I really just gave up on the re- on the music business and everything, and just did it because I'm going to make a record that I might die tomorrow, and I just want to make sure I have a really good record. <laughs> well, and, and, and the album leads off with "Try," and I'm like, yeah. And so you're listening to that, and you're like, "Oh, whoa, man, that's okay." That's, yeah, that's just a- well, uh, and, and that's the thing. I, I, I to me, uh, the, the lyrics are probably more important than the music. <laughs> I, I, I would uh, agree. Yeah. In the long run, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, you know, what am I trying to say? And, and uh, how am I going to transform? I, don't, I heard a quote recently um, that if you don't transform your pain, you will transmit it. Yes. And, and I think but around Lefty, I had really, I had, I was definitely, um, I felt washed up. Um, what was going to happen was is definitely not going to happen. And the thing that made it more painful than anything is is the repeatedly people saying, "If life was fair, you'd be a rock star, Rob." You know, and and if there was any justice on the planet, you'd be you know XDC or something like that. But I had reached a point where I really don't want to be XDC. Uh, I 
don't I'm cool, you know. <laughs> my guitars got stolen and I replaced them. Everything's we're right, yeah. you know, eating. I'm not missing any meals. I've got a bunch of really cute kids. Right. Uh maybe for me it was like a John Lennon stage where gee, I think I'm gonna learn how to bake bread. I think that might be more right. meaningful right. than getting applause. So so and I, growing up, I guess is what I was doing. Um the funny thing is, every time I make a record, I always think this is it. This is the last record. Um, I was Saint Ain't was like that. Um, I'm not going to make another record. It's too much work, um, and and yet I do. Uh, but the what I wanted to get back is to, you know technically, what was cool about um, Lefty is that. I started, Lefty, I started figuring out how I like to record. And I like to record, I, I, I borrowed some stuff from, from other, and, I, and not everybody does everything I, I, the same way, but I realized I like the idea of putting drums and bass almost last. Really? Because I'd always recorded, you know, the, the traditional way is let's lay down the tracks, you know, let's get the bass and drums and, and then the best you could do is maybe play along with the bass player and drummer uh, while the track. And so they get the feel right. You get the tempo, right. They know where the words are, but if you put the drums and bass at the tail end, like, like Steely Dan does that with drums, I know. And Paul McCartney likes to track bass or at least in the Beatles like to do bass last then those those vital core instruments um know you know how to thread it thread the song the, the, instead of the song being a slave to the drummer right right the drummer i don't want to say is a slave but the drummer serves the song better um so i would use like maybe temp temp drums uh you know a machine or something like that and th and then get all the parts right play them as accurately as i could and then chris arducer um or adrian Ballou, who play drums on a lot of uh lefty uh can fill in fill in the blanks and that's just the way i like to work right. i i always i love to i love to get a song just like done and then send it to Bob Nicewanger or um, Matt Malley, um, bass player uh, that works out in, uh, he's got a studio out near Thousand Oaks in California, and just send it to him because they just come up with cooler stuff. Thank you for tuning in to episode 10 of the Guitar Hang podcast with my special guest, Rob Fetters. Please subscribe to the Guitar Hang Podcast and stay tuned for Season 2 coming soon.